right, everybody, welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We are here today to discuss two great albums from the 90s. These are former 70s rock stars who are regaining their crown as being the godfathers of hard rock. But before we do, D, I've got a question for you. Yes. What does Garth Brooks, Ace Ventura, Wayne and Garth, and Batgirl have in common? I don't know. We're going to get in it today when we talk about <laughs> Aerosmith's Get a Grip album. All right. I'm ready to see you tie all of those crazy random things together. It, hang with me on this because it's going to be amazing. This this episode, these two episodes that we've got are going to be fantastic because, as you mentioned, these two groups, guys, were icons in the 70s. Drugs and life events, and they fell apart in the 80s, and then they revved back up, and here we are talking about the albums of the 1990s that blew our doors off. Drugs and bats and spilled milk. <laughs> The stories are going to be amazing with these guys. Well, let's jump into it. Okay. Okay, so we begin in New York in 1948, where a young Stephen Victor Tallarico is born. So he started life living under a piano. His dad was a classical classically trained musician, played with big bands, just like the Van Halen brothers. Dad, Jan, played with big bands. So he grew up his first years of life being surrounded by the sounds of the piano. But then as he grew up, as you can imagine from the way he looks, he got made fun of a lot when he was a kid. Kind of skinny, big lips. Yeah. And so as a way to combat that, he decided to start playing the drums. And he realized, hey, when I get on the stage in the cafeteria, the girls that were running away from me are now walking my way. But <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be here all night. Tip your waitress. <laughs> so he gets this band together, and the band's name is Chain Reaction. Don't you know that I love Chain Reaction. And Chain Reaction actually does pretty well. They record some albums. They've got some songs on the jukebox. Yeah, I mean, like legitimate records on the jukebox. Yeah. And a couple of guys that are interested in this band are Anthony Joseph Perriera. I don't know how to pronounce that last name. I'm glad he went with Perry. Yes. And Tom Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, when they became interested, they were at that point too young to get in the clubs that Stephen was playing in. So Joe and Tom decide, hey, we're going to put our own band together. They call their band The Jam Band. The Jam Band. Because they're not the creative members of this quintet. That is as boring as Joe Perry is. <laughs> uh, Joe Perry. Now, Joe Perry strikes me as the guy that when you're like, hey, how's it going? That he's like. Yeah, and he starts to tell you how it's actually going, and it's not interesting, and you're like, I was really just making small talk. I don't really care about your life. Yeah, he's a very serious-looking guy. <laughs> he does look like a rock star, though. I mean, he's Oh, yeah. He's well, he's got the abs. Got, I mean, he's oh, the ad. Yes, yes. He had abs at 48. <laughs> In 1969, Steven's band had broken up and he was back at home mowing his grass. Mm -hmm. Joe Perry is the guy who pulls up in the MG and says, hey, how you doing? Steven says, I haven't seen you in a while. Joe says, hey, me, some of the boys are playing at the barn tonight. What are you doing? Steven says, nothing. Maybe I'll come see you. And as Joe is about to drive off, Steven says, 
hey, maybe we'll play together sometime. Pretty important sentence in the history of rock and roll right there. Right. So he goes to the show that night and he listens to them play and he thinks they're awful. And so he is about to get up and leave. And then they start playing a song that starts out. Well, if you want to rock. sexy and steven is transfixed he is amazed at the dynamics of this song he's thinking to himself oh my gosh the the classical music of my dad and my lyrics and this type of sexy song we could actually make something out of this yeah yeah you know what song is they're playing huh what is it okay so it's a song that we talked about in the skid row episode and a song that we talked about in the Motley Crue episode uh-huh. because they both have songs on their albums that have the same name but it's not a Motley Crue song and it's not a Skid Row song it's a Fleetwood Mac song called Rattlesnake Shake nice I did not know that that's why I'm here man <laughs> I am here to you, give you information that will blow your mind you're blowing my mind the Rattlesnake Shake Steve and Joe and Tom move out to Boston in 1970 just to try to put something together. They come across this drummer named Joey Kramer and they think, man, if we could get this guy, we're going to be set. They come across another guy who's a really good guitarist named Brad Whitford. Yeah, Brad is one of those guys. I mean, he looks like Santa Claus, right? <laughs> right? He's like a long white beard and he, he looks so disinterested in all those videos. I don't know. You, you look at that group and you're like, how did this guy sneak into the band? It's incredible. like, did they get, is one of the, is one of the guys sick? Did they get a roadie? <laughs> did they get a roadie to come in here and play guitar? Wait, bring in more hot girls. Brad's not smiling yet. He's got dry, crusty, banged hair, but he's, he's a good guitarist. He's a great guitarist and, and one of the members of the greatest rock and roll band of all time. That's right. So Joey Kramer came up with the name of the band. Hey, what do you think about Aerosmith? Yeah. So they start playing. They start rocking out Boston so hard that some music managers named Steven Lever and David Krebs notice them. And they're like, we got to put on a show for these guys. So they do this showcase show for them in October of 1971. If you're paying attention, that's 50 years ago. Wow. Incredible. Wow. They bring in the president of Columbia Records, Mr. Clive Davis, who instantly fell in love. As a matter of fact, he came down and said, I'm going to make you a star. That's what every rock singer wants to hear. I'm going to make you a star. <laughs> Could you bring out the standard rich and famous contract? <laughs> when are we going to do the Muppet movie? Oh, my gosh. We need to. Okay. So the first success that they have is a song off their debut album, also called Aerosmith. It came from a melody that Steven Tyler had written back when he was only 17 years old. And the name of the song is Dream On. So good. Oh my gosh. When I went to the Pizza Inn as a young kid, and I mean... The, the pizza parlor that had the video game, the, the pizza parlor that had the little TVs, the little black and white TVs that you could put a quarter in and watch TV while you ate your pizza. Wow. But on the jukebox, you were going to have 
another one bites the dust, or we will rock you. You are going to have another brick in the wall or money, and you are going to have Dream On. It's one of the most iconic rock songs of all time, and probably the grandfather of every power ballad that's ever been made. Arguably. And then I would get done with my one piece of pizza and say, can I go play Miss Pac-Man? That's a good night right there. Yeah. Dream On and Miss Pac-Man. A little tabletop. Hey, I, I want to take just a brief moment and mention there is a version of Dream On that is on the last Action Hero soundtrack that came out in 93. Yeah. It's a live version. It's actually conducted by Michael Kamen, the same guy who did the music for Lethal Weapon and Die Hard and Highlander. Highlander. Yeah. Countless movies. Yeah. And it is an amazing version of Dream On. One of their most iconic songs. However, it's not a big success. It's crazy. The album barely sold over a hundred thousand. How does that happen? I don't know. Um, but with a showing that poor, the record label said, "Your next album better be a major success, or you're going to be done." And so they went back in the recording studio with producer Jack Douglas and a copious amount of cocaine, and they produced their second album called "Get Your Wings." Nice. Nineteen seventy-four. Get Your Wings went gold, but at this point, the animosity starts to begin and build between the key members of the band, the Toxic Twins, Joe and Steven. Yes. Because of his intrusive and strong-willed girlfriend and ultimately wife, Joe Perry started spending less and less time with the band and more and more time with Alyssa. Steven Tyler said he didn't really sit down to write a song about her, but you're going to recognize a lyric that he said is unquestionably referring to her. Talking about things that nobody cares. Yeah, so that lyric was inspired by Alyssa Perry. The next album that they recorded was Toys in the Attic. It's the same story that we've told multiple times now. We're almost done with the album. It's the same old song and dance. Oh, way to go, man. (laughs) They're almost done. They don't quite have a hit song on the album yet. Joe Perry is fiddling around on the guitar and comes up with this little thing that goes... And then Steven Tyler, drummer, yes, sits down and is like, and suddenly they can tell this song is a hit. All they need are lyrics. <laughs> Where are the lyrics? We can't think of the lyrics. Pulling their hair out. Come They're, on, words. Words, words, words. <laughs> Unfortunately, they weren't coming. Right. And so after several hours of, I'm about ready to tear my hair out. Can we do some more cocaine? Jack Douglas is like, guys, just take a break. You know, walk across the street, watch a movie. It'll be fine. Well, the movie that happened to be playing across the street was this movie called Young Frankenstein. And so they go in and they laugh their butts off, specifically at one line by Marty Feldman. Walk this way. No, this way. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. This song was almost called Abby Normal. (laughs) This song was almost called What Knockers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you, Doctor. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yes. So the song Walk This Way was born at a magical moment from the movie 
Young Frankenstein. That's really cool. What a great story. So another cool story around this time, the band was driving to one of their gigs together um, and they get pulled over by a police car and the officer finds one seed, a seed, not even multiple seeds, but <laughs> a seed of marijuana uh-huh. and handcuffs everybody and takes them all down to the station. And so they're sitting there and you're thinking, well, what, what story about there's a seed. I mean, what are you going to do with a seed? Right. Right. Well, the problem is, is that Brad Whitford had two bags of marijuana inside (laughs) his pants. (laughs) What if your drugs were on fire? Uh, Impossible, sir. They're in Whitford's underwear. (laughs) (laughs) So they're sitting there waiting, knowing that the, bags of marijuana are just in his pants and suddenly Steven Tyler looks and sees that the door next to them is open and the room that it goes into is dark and so he grabs the marijuana bags throws them into this empty room and the officer walks in right after it happens doesn't know what's happened and they managed to make it to the show in time. Wow. So Walk This Way finds its way into the top 10. So they start recording their next album, Rocks. You know, before you go any further, we, we did a poll on our Facebook page and yeah. on our Twitter page. Yeah. We just put it out there and we said, what's your favorite Aerosmith album of all time? Toys in the Attic really was the overwhelming favorite by most people. But Rocks kind of finished second. Rocks has been cited as the inspiration to start playing music by Nikki Six slash James Hetfield, Kurt Cobain. And according to one story, Eddie Van Halen said that they got their big break by touring the L.A. clubs playing Aerosmith songs. Now, of course, that story came from Joe Perry, so you don't know how, <laughs> how good that story is, but... Anyway, yes, so so Rocks was a huge inspiration to a lot of folks. So at this point, they're headlining tours and they are filling up stadiums. Now, also during this time, Steven Tyler starts dating a Playboy model named Bebby Buell. And he takes her to Germany with them on tour. And they have a nice little romance for about two and a half weeks. Yep, yep. And then they're done. And she goes back home. But then a few months after that... He finds out that she's pregnant and he's not sure if the baby is his or not. And she's rekindled her relationship with another rock musician named Todd Rundgren. Uh And she doesn't want the baby to be Steven Tyler's. So she and Todd raise Liv as their own. Yeah, Liv. And not surprisingly, Steven Tyler doesn't just go try to find his hardest. He's not in the best spot in his life to go be a dad. Yeah, yeah. Cocaine is more of his thing at that moment. Right. By the way, Todd Rundgren lives surrogate dad for for the first, you know, half of her life. Yeah, yeah. uh, Is not only a musician, he was a producer as well. He produced Straight Up by Badfinger. He produced We're an American Band by Grand Funk Railroad. He produced New York Dolls by New York Dolls, Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf. And this, are you ready? Yes. All right. In 1981... He created the first color graphic tablet software for personal computers. That was licensed to Apple called the Utopia Graphic Tablet System. What? So so just to be clear here, Todd Rundgren, Liv Tyler's stepdad, was the guy who created what would ultimately become the iPhone and the iPad. 
That's freaking amazing. That's you, crazy. You're blowing my mind. I'm I'm so glad. All you right. are blowing my mind. Also around this time, March of 1977, they start recording Draw the Line. At this point, their drug use and psychotic behavior had become so far gone that they were no longer musicians who did drugs. They were drug addicts who occasionally played music. And so at this point, they're live performances really started to suffer. And it wasn't because they were drugged out that the performances were bad. It was when they weren't drugged out. They had become such addicts that when they weren't on drugs, they, dope sick. Yeah, they were dope sick and they couldn't they couldn't put on a good stage show. And the animosity between Joe and Steven like climaxed at this point. And it was largely over drugs. Like Stephen would have drugs and Joe would be like, can I have some drugs? And Stephen would be like, no, they're my drugs. Right. And so you, that's that's the way you get. How can you be such a hateful friend not to give me some of your death drugs? <laughs> okay. So then, as bad as it was, things got worse when Stephen started dating a friend of Alyssa Perry, Joe's wife, named Sorinda Fox. Right. Not Samantha Fox. Not Samantha Fox, but both foxes. They were foxes, for sure. yes. Yes. Um, and he did start dating her despite the fact that she was married at the time to another musician. Ah, details. Yeah, okay. Um, she had set her sights on him and I guess forgotten that she had, you know, sworn an oath to stay true to somebody else. <laughs> and she started to get more and more attention. And because of the attention that she was getting, Alyssa was no longer her friend. She was her friend frenemy yep she was just her enemy actually they just she started to hate her and this this angry Alyssa made steven tyler so happy that he married sarinda <laughs> <laughs> i know what a really driver crazy we'll get married yeah so at this point all of the wives would sit backstage and just despise each other and at some point a glass of milk is thrown yes Alyssa perry throws a glass of milk at Brad Whitford's wife. And that's when it, the whole thing blows up and literally Aerosmith breaks up over a glass of spilled milk. Yeah. So Alyssa was the one who threw the glass of milk, but Joe is the one who comes to the band and says, I've had enough. Maybe I should just split. Their only response is to nod in agreement. Yeah. So Joe went out on his own and did the Joe Perry project, you yeah. know, the big famous Joe Perry project. Uh, yeah, no, no, I'm no. not really familiar with no, that. Right. So Aerosmith replaced him as a guitarist, but magic was gone. The album that came out after that was rock in a hard place. It took them over two years to put that album together. And at that point, Brad Whitford had decided I'm tired of waiting for it. And he quit the band and he put together his own band, which of course is big and famous. Um, no, 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 I don't Sorry. remember that one. No, either. I don't know that one either. All right, so they replaced him with Rick DeFay, and the band that was once filling stadiums could now no longer fill like thousand seat clubs. While they were playing, you you could hear people yelling, like, "Where's Joe?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw another deal where Steven Tyler was dope sick on stage, uh -huh. and he goes to lean on I think Tom Hamilton. Oh, yeah. And Tom Hamilton's like, dude, get off me. And it gives him kind of a little shove. Uh -huh. And Steven Tyler goes down and can't get up. Literally, right. he's fallen and can't get up. 
It's happens. just disastrous. Yeah. And so it's at this point that Rick DeFay, the replacement guitarist that they had brought on, says the obvious thing, you guys need to get Joe back in the band. Right. Not surprisingly, Joe's band was not doing so great at this time either. Right. He needed money to, despite the fact that he was a world famous musician, since his management took half of the money that the band made, mm -hmm. he had no more money left. And so he sold his 1959 Les Paul. That's the guitar that had the riff coming off of it. He's like, so done with that band. I don't care. A few years later, he's like, I missed that guitar. Right. I wonder if I can find that guitar. And at this point, he's got people. And so he puts, you know, puts the feelers out and somebody gives him a call and says, hey, check out the latest spread in guitar world. He opens it up and it is a guitar collection that has his 1959 Les Paul right in the middle of it. And whose guitar collection is it? Slash of Guns N' Roses. And so he gives Slash a call. Uh-huh. And he's like, hey, man. And he's like, oh, hey, Joe. <laughs> he's excited. I mean, we, we know like it, Joe's the inspiration for him getting into music, right? Right. And so he's like, so you've got my guitar. And Slash is like, oh, my gosh, please don't ask me what you're going to ask me. <laughs> please do not say what you're going to say. And he's like, man, I'd really love to have that. He's like, don't say it. He's like, man, I can't. I can't part with this. This is like the jewel of my, my collection. And Joe's like, okay, man, just think about it. And keeps calling him every once in a while to kind of hit him up about it. Right. And eventually Slash stops taking Joe Perry's phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> Your hero's on the line again. Tell him I'm not here. <laughs> so Joe realizes that he's been cut off. And so he gets, he makes contact with him. He's like, man, I don't want to split up our friendship over this. I will never say another word to you about my guitar. Okay. My guitar that I love. <laughs> my baby. <laughs> I will not bring up my baby anymore. <laughs> and so he lets it go. Yeah. And then a couple years later on his 50th birthday, he opens a present from Slash, and it's his 1959 Les Paul. Yes, that is awesome. So both Stephen and Joe find new stable spouses at this point. Yeah. They both are good about helping them get their act back together. And ultimately, in March of 1984, they get the band back together. Yeah. They change management. They change record labels. The next album that they had was called done with mirrors. Mm -hmm. The drug use was still heavy. The inability to get things done was still there. And so they were still struggling for a couple of years. Yeah. Until a moment of magic in March of 1986, they get a call from Mr. Rick Rubin. And if you don't know who Rick Rubin is, his album production is so voluminous that I couldn't even begin to scratch the surface. He is an icon. And he says, I'd like to re-record one of your biggest hits with a rap group called Run DMC. This is a huge, momentous event, not just in Aerosmith history, but in rock and roll and hip hop history. Absolutely. The, to say that the mashup of these two bands is revolutionary is an understatement. Dr. Dre described it as a breakthrough moment because it was the first time hip hop 
was getting played on MTV. It's a really cool moment. Right. It brought them back into my mind. I remember as a little kid hearing Dream On on the radio and some of those other songs, but they were absent from my developmental years totally. for music. But then in 86, when that video came out, I was like, oh, I, I know these guys. Where do I know these guys from? And that's kind of the way that everybody else reacted. Absolutely. So suddenly they've got an appeal for a whole brand new audience. And so they've got new management who says, this is our moment. This is our moment to grab. We can get a new audience from this MTV craze. We just have to fix the drug problem. Yep. And so that's... That's what they do. They they force them into rehab, and it takes five years, a lot of hard work, but eventually all five members of the band are sober together. And during that time, Steven Tyler finds out that he has a nine-year-old daughter named Liv. Imagine we're going to talk about her here in just a few minutes. Uh, that'd be good. So Permanent Vacation comes out in 87. Desmond Child is brought in as an outside writer to help them with some of these songs. Yeah. Permanent Vacation was their first drug-free album. And it's fantastic. Yeah, it's a great one. It was during that time that uh, they mistook Vince Neal as a hot girl in a bar. <laughs> <laughs> and then not too long after that, they uh, their management convinced them to bring in a songwriting partner, Desmond Child. Desmond Child, yes. We talked about in our Bon Jovi episode. Desmond Child is, you know... Who's Desmond Child at this point, Just right? Just a guy, right? Just a guy. So you wrote a few Bon Jovi songs. Good for you. Like right. literally, this is you know all happening at the same time. And so he asserts himself quite nicely. He comes in, they're playing a song, and they've got this lyric that they're working with. Cruising for the ladies. Yeah. <laughs> and so they say, What do you think? And Desmond Child says, I think that sounds like and they're like Oh, oh, thank you. Okay. Appreciate that. Yeah. And so he's like, well, I got my work cut out for me. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. So let, let us tell you what the original lyric right. was. How about the line, dude looks like a lady? And Desmond Child goes, now you got a hit. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. And so he comes up with the first line. Cruising to a bar on the shore. And Steven Tyler follows it with the second line. Her picture grates the grime on the door. And suddenly Steven Tyler realized he did not have to do so much hard work writing songs. It's fantastic. Oh, it's a great song. Someday we need to do Permanent Vacation. I would love to do Permanent Vacation. Yeah. After Dude Looks Like a Lady, they released a song called Angel. Yes. Which is a, a power ballad. Yeah. And a softer power ballad. It like is. It, it's not Dream On. It's a, it's a much softer, slow dance kind of song. It's on the makeout list of 1987. <laughs> <laughs> and Tom Hamilton's like, I don't like this. This is this is not us. This song is wimpy and mushy, and I don't like it. Uh, this is we're we're rockers. I don't know what this ha is happening here. And then literally moments later, some dudes like in leather jackets with long beards and biker tattoos go, "Oh man, Angel, I love this song. You guys could play that anytime." And he's like, "Well, there goes my argument. <laughs> Guess we'll keep writing those kind of songs." And it, it, that's kind of become their thing. I mean, we're lucky he lost that argument, or we would be without some major Aerosmith songs after that, including their number one. I don't want to miss a thing from yeah. Armageddon. Yeah. Woo. So after that, they released Pump, and their videos go to next level. To say, okay. Let's say that the videos and the songs might be described as slightly sexual. Yeah. Loving an elevator. 
based on a true story and experience by Mr. Steven Tyler himself. Yes, I'm I'm not shocked when I heard that story. Right. They didn't push the stop button though. <laughs> At some point in the midst of it all, the doors opened up and people, you know, some family on vacation. <laughs> we'll get the next one. <laughs> so then in 1993, they released the album that we are here to talk about today. Get a grip. Get a grip. So join us for that, not next week, but just in a couple of days. It will be amazing. It will be crazy. We're going to be living on the edge. You'll be <laughs> laughing. You'll be crying. D, D. get a grip. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys in two days.